Over the next couple of months, we are going to focus our attention on a new sermon series entitled, I Pray. We're going to examine various biblical prayers, glean eternal truth from those prayers, then import that truth into our own prayer life. So today we begin with a prayer of David. It's found in Psalm 86. I've simply entitled it Prayer 101. I invite you to take a Bible and turn there. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence the public reading of God's holy word. Psalm 86, a prayer of David. Hear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Guard my life, for I am devoted to you. You are my God. Save your servant who trusts in you. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I call to you all day long. Bring joy to your servant, for to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. You are forgiving and good, O Lord, abounding in love to all who call to you. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Listen to my cry for mercy. In the day of my trouble, I will call to you, for you will answer me. Among the gods, there is none like you, O Lord. No deeds can compare with yours. All the nations you have made will come and worship before you, O Lord. They will bring glory to your name. For you are great, and you do marvelous deeds. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. I will praise you, O Lord, my God, with all my heart. I will glorify your name forever. For great is your love toward me. You have delivered me from the depths of the grave. The arrogant are attacking me, O God. A band of ruthless men seeks my life, men without regard for you. But you, O Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. Turn to me and have mercy on me. Grant your strength to your servant. And save the son of your maidservant. Give me a sign of your goodness that my enemies may see it and be put to shame. For you, O Lord, have helped me. And you, O Lord, have comforted me. This is the word of the Lord. And thanks be to God. You may be seated. It was Richard Foster in his book entitled Prayer, Finding the Heart's True Home that he describes prayer with these words. Prayer is the human response to the perpetual outpouring of divine love whereby God lays siege of the soul. Prayer is the human response to the perpetual outpouring of divine love whereby God lays siege of the soul. Prayer is the human response to perpetual outpouring of divine love, whereby God lays siege of the soul. In other words, we pray because we've been captivated by the goodness of God. This is what David says as he begins his prayer of Psalm 86. Hear, O Lord, and answer me. This is not a command. This is not a condition of prayer. This is evidence of why David prays. David prays for the same reasons that you pray. We pray because we know that God has the ability to hear and the authority to answer. Aren't you glad this morning that our God has both ability and authority? He has the ability to hear and the authority to answer. Oh, how tragic it would be 
if God only had ability but no authority. He could hear the prayers but would have no authoritative recourse to actually correct the problem. It would be equally tragic if God had all authority but no ability. For he would have the authority to fix up that which has messed us up, but he would not have the ability to listen up to his people as they pray. I'm grateful today that we serve a God who has both ability and authority. He has the ability to hear and the authority to answer. Since that's true, there's no problem too big. Since God has the ability and authority, there's no circumstance too trivial. Since God has both ability and authority, there is no marriage too messed up. Since God has authority and ability, therefore there's no child that's too wayward. Since God has both ability and authority, there's no bank account too empty. Since God has authority and ability, there is no uh, prognosis that is too bleak. What I'm telling you is that we serve a God who has the ability to hear and the authority to answer. So we pray unto him. All the time when we pray, we pray out of the I-thou relationship. We pray, like David, out of the I-thou relationship. If you're in Christ, you know something of what I'm talking about. Because for those of us in Christ, we understand, I am the redeemed, thou art the redeemer. I am the saved, thou art the savior. I am the servant, thou art the sovereign king. We always live, move, breathe, and pray out of this I-thou relationship. We ought to never get that backwards. We ought to never confuse the identity of who we are and to whom we pray. I am the servant, thou art the sovereign king. I am the redeemed, thou art the redeemer. I am the saved, thou art the savior. David prays out of this I-thou relationship. This is fundamental, this is foundational to how you pray, how I I pray for we all pray out of the I thou relationship in Psalm 86 there are seven characteristics of the I thou relationship yeah you heard me right seven there are seven characteristics I came across one commentary one theologian who identified 15 requests that David makes of God in Psalm 86 and I thought to myself well I could preach a 15 point sermon but then I decided to preach a seven point sermon because there's seven characteristics of the I thou relationship because I thought seven may be more palatable than 15 but this just might be a sermon that would be advantageous for you to pull out a piece of paper and pen to jot down some notes for future study and reference. It may be advantageous for you to get out your smartphone or your device and pull up that note app and just take some notes so you can have it for future reference. David gives us seven I-thou characteristics. The first one, David says, I am poor and needy, thou art my God. This morning, I want you to have open Bible, open mind. I want you to see where these couplets come from. I am poor and needy. Thou art my God. This is in verses 1 and 2. At the end of verse 1, David says, I am poor and needy. In the middle of verse 2, he says, you are my God. Nobody knows for sure when David wrote this prayer. Most suspect that it was sometime within his 40-year reign. 
While nobody knows the exact backdrop of Psalm 86, everybody seems to conclude that he wrote this sometime during his uh, four-decade reign of Israel. Since that's true, David writes these words when he has all the worldly wealth at his disposal. He eats the choices of foods. He's dressed in the finest of clothes. He drives in the fanciest of chariots. He lives in the most palatial of accommodations. He has soldiers that defend him, servants that wait on him every hand and foot, and ladies who love him. He has everything the world has to offer, and yet he begins this prayer by declaring, I am poor and needy. David, how do you say that? You've got everything at your disposal. You've got wealth. You've got more things than anybody ever could hope for. How can you say I am poor and needy? He's reminding us that when we come to God in the I-Thou relationship, we never get beyond the fact of being desperately dependent upon God. Regardless of all your accolades, regardless of all your achievements, Regardless of how much money is in your bank account, regardless of how many homes you may possess, how many cars you're able to drive, regardless, you never get beyond the fact that you, my friend, are poor and needy before God. This is exactly what Jesus will say. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The only way that anybody gets to God, gets into God's kingdom, is on bended knee with head downcast, eyes closed, Arms outstretched, palms open heavenward, realizing that we are nothing more than spiritual beggars. Regardless of how long we've walked with the Lord, regardless of how long we have followed hard after God, we are desperately dependent upon the God so we can say unto him, I am poor and needy. But we pray to the God who is my God. I want you to notice that. David is not praying to this God or that God, a God or another God. He's praying to my God. There's a relationship that exists. David never had religion. He always had a relationship. You remember Psalm 23? For the Lord is my shepherd. There is a personal relationship. I know God. God knows me. We're on first name basis. I know the Lord and the Lord knows me. I might be poor and needy, but I'm praying to the one who is my God. This is fundamental to our prayer life. We have to approach God with this I-thou relationship. And we never get beyond desperate dependency. And we always are talking to the God who wants to be very close and personal. If we ever get this backwards, if we ever get this convoluted, then we go to God in arrogance and pride and entitlement. We pray to him almost acting as if we could stiff arm the Holy Savior, almost as if we could make demands of him and he'd be forced to do what we want him to do. No, we are the ones who go to him poor and needy and he is the God of the cosmos. So David says, first, I am poor and needy, thou art my God. Second, David says, I am devoted to you, thou art forgiving. I am devoted to you, that's found in verse 2. You are forgiving, O Lord, that's found in verse 5. David says, I am devoted to you. That word devote can also be translated godly. I am godly. You say, David, how can you say you're godly? You've done a lot of bad things. You're guilty of lust and lying, of adultery and murder. David, you've broken all of the top 10, 10 commandments. And 
that has to be true because David looks a lot like you and he looks a lot like me, right? I mean, all of us are guilty as charged, sinful to the core. But David says, no, I am devoted to God. I am godly. You'll remember what we learned in Psalm 115, won't you? Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. Why do the pagan nations ask, where is their God? The pagan nations make pagan idols. They're made out of wood and stone and precious jewel. You can see them. You can touch them. You can go and pray to them. And they ask the question, where is your God? I can't see him, therefore he must not exist. And the psalmist says, those who make those idols will be like them. So at some level, we become like that which we worship. If you worship self, you will become selfish. You worship greed, you will become greedy. Worship alcohol, probably become an alcoholic. Worship tolerance, you probably will become tolerant. You worship God, and in all likelihood, you will become godly. That's what David is saying. My heart's desire is to be devoted unto the Lord. I want to be godly, and the only way I can be godly is because I'm praying to thou who art forgiving. David, of all people, understands that God forgives our mess. He cleans up all of our mess-ups. David understands that, yes, I am guilty as charged, but God has completely and thoroughly forgiven me. His forgiveness is free. His forgiveness is forever. John Bunyan said that prayer will cause a man to cease from sin, but sin will entice a man to cease from prayer. When I came across that quote, it stopped me dead in my tracks. I think Bunyan is onto something. He says that prayer will cause a person to cease from sin. Because when you pray, you realize you're praying to the God who is forgiving of your sin. And when he does that, you have inside of you a desire to be more godly, to be more devoted. So prayer causes a man to be ceased from sin. But sin will entice a man to cease from prayer. Could it be, my friends, that you and I become negligent in prayer? Could it be that we become flippant in our prayers? Could it be that we only pray just for a few seconds of a day? Could it be because we've been enticed by sin? Could it be, my brother, my sister, that it is the sin that entices a man to cease from prayer? praying. David understood, I am devoted to you, O Lord. Why? Because thou art forgiving. There's a third characteristic of the I-thou relationship. I want you to see it in scripture. The third characteristic says, I will call to you for thou will answer me. We find this in verse 3, referenced in verse 5, explicitly stated in verse 7. In the day of my trouble, I will call to you for you will answer me. In the day of my trouble, I will call. The word call means cry. It means to moan. Elsewhere translated to groan. It is to cry out in prayer. In the day of trouble, in the moment of distress, I cry out to you. My prayers are like liquid love streaming down my cheeks. I call out to you. I cry unto you. Do you know what it feels like to pray like this? To pray in sobs of tears, to pray unto the Lord in your moment of distress. You pray unto him. You call unto him. Do you know what this sounds like? It's the teenager 
who cries unto the Lord because he's cut from the basketball team. And at this point in his life, basketball is his passion. It's the student who cries out unto the Lord when she receives the algebra test back and she failed it, even though she studied for it. It's that young man who gets rejected from his college of choice. It's that middle-aged man who after giving 27 years to the company was called into the boss's office and said, your services are no longer needed. It's that woman who was just told by her husband, I don't love you anymore. I found somebody else. It's that phone call. And on the other end of the phone is a police officer that tells you that your son was in a fatal car wreck. Do you know what it is to cry out unto the Lord like that? Do you know what it is to cry out in your day of distress, in your moment of trouble? David says, I cry out to the Lord. Why? Because thou will answer me. If you could convince me that God does not listen, I would stop praying. If you could convince me that God will not answer then I would stop praying. But I don't think you can convince me that God doesn't listen. And I'm certain you can't convince me that God doesn't answer. David says, because God listens and because God answers, I pray. I will call to you for thou will answer me. And God's gonna answer with abounding love. God is not like that disgruntled cashier at JetPep. You know who I'm talking about. You know, that person who they're mad at the world. They're angry that you're even at their gas station and they just kind of run your stuff all the way through just to get you out the door. You know that type of person. God is not like that type of person. Oh, God responds with abounding love. He will answer. He will answer with abounding love. He will answer with a yes. Maybe a no. Perhaps a wait. But he will answer. He will answer your prayers. He will answer it with abounding love. Even as his children are being carted off to Babylonian captivity, it is God who says to the prophet Jeremiah, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope in a future. Even as they're being carted off in the day of distress, he says, hey, I still got your back. I know what your future holds. So why do you pray? Like David, you say, I will call out to you because I know thou will answer me. There's a fourth characteristic of the I-thou relationship. David says, I lift up my soul for thou art good. It's at the end of verse four. It's at the beginning of verse five. David says at the end of verse four, I lift up my soul. In verse five, he not only says, you are a forgiving uh, Lord, but he says, you are a good Lord. I lift up my soul. Thou art good. I lift up my soul. You and I would render that phrase, uh, I bear my soul. I bear my soul. I lift up my soul. Why? Because thou art good. I, I bear my soul. You know what it is to pray when you're bearing your soul? It's the prayer that you don't really pray in front of other people. It's just a private prayer. 
It's prayer that you offer in your prayer closet. And you are bearing your soul, lifting up your burdens. They are so cumbersome, so heavy, yet you're just pouring yourself out into the Lord. This is, how, this is what David's talking about. I lift up my soul. I bear my soul before you. I think that prayer is one of the most transparent disciplines in the Christian life. I think it's one of the most challenging disciplines in the Christian life because we don't like to bear our soul. We don't like to air our dirty laundry. We don't like to come and just lift up our soul unto the Lord. Can I be real honest with you this morning? I don't know how many times I pray with the purest of motives. I think I pray with a mixed bag of motives. Oh, we say we want God's will, God's work, God's way. That's what we say. Oh, God, we just want whatever you want. But when I pray, I, I come to him with a mixed bag of motives. Some pure, some selfish. And I don't think I'm alone in this. I think that's how you pray. I think that when you pray, you lift up your soul. You bear your soul to God. And sometimes it's with the purest of motives. And other times it's just, God, I want you to do this. And you come with a very selfish mentality. We pray, Lord, please heal my mom. Give her 20 more good years here on earth. And it never crosses our minds to actually pray. Yet, God, if your healing's going to be taking her out of this world into her heavenly home, I'm okay with that too. No, we want mom to be healed, don't we? It's praying for that promotion at work. God, you know that I need this. I want this. I deserve this. You know I'm qualified for this. You know all the, all the demands that are coming on, the finances and the family right now. Uh, an extra little bonus here and there, that would be great. God, I need this promotion, and you're the God who can pull the strings. You're the God that can make this happen. And it never fathoms or crosses our minds that maybe Tom from accounting is going to get the job because... God sees that he may need it more than you. Or it's the young married couple. They've been married for about four years. And they really want to start a family. And they're trying, but every month their emotions are dashed. And it's a struggle. And they pray and they say, God, please allow us to conceive. Allow us to have a child. And they can't fathom why in the world God is causing them to wait, telling them to wait. After all, God is the one who opens the womb of the woman. So, Lord, we want you to do this. You want to do this for us. So why in the world have you not done this for us? Oh, prayer is bearing our soul unto the Lord. In my day of distress, I, I cry unto you. In my day of distress, I call unto you. I lift up my soul unto you. Because I know that you're good. Thou art good. Is it wrong for us to pray for a parent's healing or a promotion at work or the blessing of parenthood? Is that wrong for us to pray for any of those things? No. In fact, God wants us to pray for those things. But at the end of the day, we have to understand that we are praying to a good God. And he's going to answer in a good way. 
He's gonna do everything well. He's gonna do everything right. So I may not understand it. I may not uh, know how it's gonna work out. And when it does work out, I may not be able to see how to connect all the dots, but I've got to rest at this, at this blessed assurance that God is a good God. He does all things well. I don't know where I came across this. I don't think I read it anywhere. I think, I, I just think it came to me. I don't know who told me this, but here's my understanding of prayer. My understanding of prayer is this, that we give God the desires of our heart, realizing that they're in the sweet embrace of God. Prayers of the desires of your heart are in the sweet embrace of God. And God doesn't belittle your request. He doesn't ignore your request. He doesn't push you aside. He doesn't post your request on the heavenly Facebook page for all of heaven to read. No, he's a very personal God. And he takes you in a very personal way. And he says, yes, I want you to come and talk to me because I want you to know that I am a good God and I want you to bear your soul because I will do all things well. David says in this I-thou relationship, I am poor and needy. Thou art my God. I am devoted to you. Thou art forgiving. I will call to you. Thou will answer me. I lift up my soul. Thou art good. Fifth. David says, I will walk in your truth, for thou art great. I will walk in your truth. That's in verse 11. Back up in verse 10, for you are great. You do marvelous deeds. You alone are our God. I will walk in your truth. David understands that there is no inspiration without instruction. I will walk in your truth. You've got to teach me some things, God. And when you teach me some things, I will obey. I will walk in your truth. All throughout the Bible, the imagery of walking is the imagery of an obedient lifestyle. So I walk in the truth. That means I'm obedient to the word and the will of God. I will walk in your truth. Why? Because thou art great. You are great. It's one thing to say God is good and he does all things well. It's another thing to say God is great. To say God is great is to speak of the massive greatness of God. God is greater than any nation. He is greater than any power. He is greater than any fear. He is greater than any foe. He is greater than anything in your past. He is greater than anything in your future. God is massively great. And when we pray, we are praying to the great God of the cosmos. The bigger we make God, the smaller we make our problems. When you and I focus on the greatness of God, it is very hard to nurse a grudge. When you and I focus on the greatness of God, we are a lot slower to retaliate against that brother or sister who has slandered us. When we focus on the greatness of God, it is difficult for us to allow anger to get the best of us. For when anger gets the best of us, it reveals the worst in us. When we focus on the greatness of God, then the stress of this world becomes much more manageable. When we focus on the greatness of God, 
then we don't get angry and mad and frustrated so easily. When we focus on the greatness of God, we don't get uh, embittered by the entitlement that doesn't come our way at the ball field or at church or at work. When we focus on the greatness of God, then everything else pales in comparison. This is what David is saying. In his prayer, he is saying, I will walk in your truth I will focus upon you. I will walk in your truth that you teach me for thou art great. You and I sometimes have a God that's far too small. Sometimes we conjure a God who is far too small. Let this sink in. I've said it before, I'll say it again. The God of the cosmos wants to talk to you. The God of the cosmos wants to talk to me. God, in all of his greatness, in all of his glory, in all of his holiness, he he wants to talk with us. I thought you'd get more excited than that, but that's okay. I'm excited about it. This is a great, massive God. I will walk in your truth, David says, because thou art great. Sixth, I will praise you with all my heart. For thou hast delivered me from the depths of the grave. I will praise you with all my hearts in verse 12. In verse 13, you have delivered me from the depths of the grave. I will praise you with all of my heart. One verse earlier, he asked for God to give him an undivided heart, which means he wanted a focused heart. Don't give me a divided heart where I'm focused on this and focused on that. I don't want to have spiritual ADD. That's what David is saying. I don't want to suffer from spiritual attention deficit disorder. I don't want to just, whoop, there's a rabbit. There I go. No, I want to focus like a Patriot missile on you. I, I, I don't want an undivided heart. I, want, I don't want a divided heart. I want an undivided heart. I want to praise you with all of my heart. You remember after his escapade with Bathsheba, it's David who writes Psalm 51. And in there, he says, create within me a new heart. We said that word create is the Hebrew word bara. And the word bara can only and always have God as its subject. No human can bara. What David is asking for, he's saying, God, I need for you to do a work that only you can do in my life. I need for you to give me a heart transplant. I need for you to create within me a brand new heart. Here in our passage of Psalm 86, he is saying, Lord, I need for you to give me an undivided heart so I'll be singularly focused upon you. Anybody in the house get distracted easily? Anybody here get distracted with the things of the world, the demands of the job, the things in the workplace, the things that are there in your schoolhouse? Anybody get distracted? Of course we do. And what's David asking for? He said, I will praise you with all of my undivided heart. Why? Because you have delivered me from the grave. Now that could mean one of two things. Either it could mean that David had gotten in a tight spot before and it's God who delivered him. Or, since this is poetry, and poetry is very symbolic, and since we don't know the background of what's going on in Psalm 86, could it be that David here is referencing a futuristic event and he's speaking of it with such confidence that he speaks of it in past tense? This is not uncommon in in the Psalms. It is not uncommon to speak of a futuristic event and you'd be so confident that it's gonna happen that you speak of it as if it's already occurred. 
Could this be a reference in David's life to his belief in resurrection? Where he says, uh, Lord, you have delivered me from the grave. I am so confident of this. Before I even get to the grave, I am confident that you, O oh Lord, you have delivered me from the grave. I stand before you today and I can say with equal confidence that God has delivered me from the grave. Now, I don't know when I'm going to die. It could be next hour. It could be next month. It could be next year. It could be 45 years from now. I have no idea when I'm gonna die. But regardless, I can say with equal confidence today that God has delivered me from the grave. Right now, I can speak of a futuristic event so confidently that I can use it in past tense as if it's already happened. You can take it to the bank. God is a deliverer. God delivers his children. David says, I praise you because I know that I'm in your hands and I know and I'm confident in resurrection for you have delivered me from the grave. Seventh, David says in this psalm, I will glorify you, for thou art compassionate. I will glorify your name forever. That's found at the end of verse 12. Verse 15, but you, O Lord, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. I will glorify. That means I will honor. I will exalt. I will lift up. I will magnify. I will honor and glorify. I will heap praise upon you. Why is David going to glorify God so adamantly? Because thou art compassionate. Oh God, you're compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. This is a common description of God, especially in the Old Testament. We read of it in Exodus chapter 34. Nehemiah chapter 9, here in Psalm 86. We also find reference to it in Psalm 103 and in Psalm 145. It is also made mention in Joel chapter 2 and Jonah chapter 4. On all those occasions, uh, God is described as a God who is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. I don't know about you, but I am glad that God is God. I am glad that God is compassionate towards me. I'm glad that God doesn't treat me the way I would treat me because a long time ago, I would have written me off. But God is compassionate towards me. God is gracious towards me. God is slow to anger. He doesn't just fly off at the handle. Our God is slow to anger. He's abounding in agape love. He's abounding in hesed, loyal love. And he's abounding in faithfulness. I don't know about you, but I'm glad that God is God. I woke up this morning. I knew what I was going to say. You didn't know what I was going to say, but I knew what I was going to say. And I woke up this morning and I said, God, thank you for being God. Just thank you for being God. Thank you for being so compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in love and abounding in faithfulness. Is there anybody else who this morning just wants to say, thank you, God, for being God? Because I promise you, God should have killed you, but he kept you. I promise you he should have done away with you, but he's called you unto his people and unto his work. God should have written us off many times over a long time ago, but our God is God. 
What does that mean? It means he's compassionate, he's gracious, he's slow to anger, he's abounding in love and faithfulness. Remember, all seven of these characteristics are the I-thou relationship. We pray out of the I-thou relationship. We can always, we should never forget who we are and who God is. Always remember. I am the redeemed, thou art the redeemer. I am the saved, thou art the savior. I am the servant, thou art the sovereign king. We never get beyond this identification in our relationship with God. In fact, David makes mention of the fact that he's a servant of God at least three times in the passage. We find it verse 2, verse 4, and here in verse 16. Turn to me and have mercy on me. Grant your strength to your servant. Save the son of your maidservant. David is not saying strengthen me. Pull what's inside of me out. No, he's saying plant inside of me your strength. Strengthen me with your strength. I can't make it through my strength. I can't borrow his strength and I can't borrow her strength. God, I need your strength. Strengthen me with your strength so I can make it through the day. And then he asks for one final request, one final plea. Give me a sign of your goodness. Does that sound odd to anybody else? David, I don't think you can do that. David, I don't think you should do that. Are we supposed to ask God for a sign? Is it okay to ask God for a sign? I mean, I don't know. I've kind of been taught at times, you know, don't ask God for a sign. But here at the very end, David clearly says, give me a sign of your goodness. I guess in the days of Noah, there was a sign given. It was a rainbow that God hung in the sky to remind everybody that God would never flood the earth again. Moses was given a sign. In the days of Moses, the people of God were led by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Those signs given to Noah, given to Moses, they're signs of God's goodness, his provision, his protection, his guidance. David is a man of the book. He understands the Holy Scriptures. He knows that, hey, God's given signs in the past. Why can't he give one now? So God, give me a sign. Give me a sign of your goodness. Give me a sign that will preach to the world, to the nations, to my enemies. Give me a sign that will bring my enemies to shame. I think God gave that sign. I think that God hung another sign. I I think that While God did not hang David as the sign, he did hang one of David's descendants as a sign. God gave not just a king, but he gave the king of all kings and the Lord of lords as a sign. It's a thousand years later after David makes this request, but God, nonetheless, he's not tardy, he's not late, because about 2,000 years ago, there was a sign that was lifted up outside the sacred city of Jerusalem, and there, Jesus the Christ was hung so that all the world could see God's goodness. Jesus hung there, not because he had any sin, but because you have sinned. Jesus paid a debt he did not owe because you have a sin debt that you cannot pay. Jesus hung there. Though he was innocent, he was declared guilty so that we who are guilty might be declared innocent. Jesus hung on that sign so that he could endure your hell so you could enjoy his heaven. He could take your death so you could enjoy his life. Jesus died on that cross. It's a sign of God's goodness. So whenever you get in despair, 
look to the sign of the cross. Whenever you're on dire straits, look to the sign of the cross. Whenever you're overjoyed, look to the sign of the cross because Jesus paid it all. And all to him I owe. Sin and left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. So praise the one who paid my debt and raised this life up from the dead. So praise the one who paid my debt and raised this life up from the dead. Hey church, praise the one who paid my debt and raised this life up from the dead. His name is Jesus. The God of the cosmos invites us to pray. And when we pray, we never get beyond the I-thou relationship. Because prayer is the human response to the perpetual outpouring of divine love whereby God lays siege of the soul. This morning, is there anybody here who needs to acknowledge, I'm servant and thou art sovereign? Anybody here needs to accept Jesus as Savior, Lord, today is the day to do it. Is there anybody here who's a believer in the Lord, but you're carrying a problem? You're gripped by sin. You've got a situation that is so overwhelming that it crushes your spirit. Today, I want you to come and cast all your cares upon the Lord. Is there somebody here looking for a home? Looking for a faith family, a place to belong? I invite you to come. This morning, church, as we sing, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation. And Lord, we pray that you will do a mighty work among your people that have gathered in this place today. You have free reign. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.